listening to Rights Up, the podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. Today's episode is a conversation that took place on the 28th of November 2019 between Oxford DPhil student Gautam Bhatia and Joel Madiri, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Jurisprudence at the University of Pretoria. In this episode, Gautam and Joel speak about the transformative possibilities of constitutions, specifically in the context of India and South Africa. Constitutions are the legal bedrock of many countries, but they're also political and are produced within a specific socio-historical context, much like any text. As much as constitutions are there to protect citizens, they can also exclude certain groups of people. And when a constitution doesn't work for all, how do we best address this? To what extent can we reinterpret a constitution so it's more inclusive? And when do we need to start again from scratch? In this episode, Gautam and Joel discuss these questions in the context of India and South Africa. So my name is Gautam. I'm presently a DPhil student here in Oxford. Before I came here, I spent four years in India, where I'm from, as a practicing lawyer. And uh, my engagement with, or my serious engagement with Indian constitutional law, for me, began on a night um, in 2013, December. I was in the US. And so I was many hours behind Indian time. And there was a judgment that was going to be pronounced on the um, criminalization of same-sex relations in India. And that was the, that was morning in India. It was night in the US where I was. Everyone expected a good outcome. The Delhi High Court had a few years ago decriminalized same-sex relations. The, the Indian state had not appealed, but some fringe religious groups had appealed that decision. And the Supreme Court was going to give a final verdict to everyone's, or at least uh, to many people's shock horror, dismay and despair, the Supreme Court reversed that decision and recriminalized same-sex relations. Uh, I remember being unable to sleep that night um, and wondering how this would happen because like many other Indian, young Indian law students, I had been brought up in law school to believe that the Indian Supreme Court was largely, with some blips, a progressive and humane institution. That vision of the Supreme Court just did not square with a court that could do this And so I began to think and rethink the stuff I'd been taught. And what I realized after retracing my journey through Indian constitutional law was that actually this judgment was more um, par for the course than an exception. So in its history, the Supreme Court had more often than not been a rather conservative uh, and deferential institution and not the ardent rights protector that we'd been uh, led to believe. But the deeper I went into Indian constitutional law, uh, a journey that I I conducted along with being involved in uh, constitutional cases in India at the same time, I realized that there was this dominant history of the Indian Supreme Court in the fashion I've just described. But there were also judgments that took a very different view. Judgments that understood the Indian constitution as being a deeply transformative document that sought to both transform Indians from subject to citizens and also to uh, democratize Indian life beyond the public sphere and have social equality within what we understand as the private sphere. And these judgments form what I now like to call a contrapuntal canon borrowing from Edward Said, uh, that they are this 
um, this private voice, this this under underlying voice that always dissents against the dominant register. And so I wrote a book called The Transformative Constitution that focused on these kinds of judgments from the Indian Supreme Court, from the high courts in various Indian states. And I tried to argue that uh, that this vision was truer, is truer, um, is more faithful to the Constitution's transformative purpose. And the Indian Constitution is a far more radical document than its interpretation would have us believe. This book was published in March of um, this year, at a time when <clears throat> there was a degree of hope around the Constitution and the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court had recently gone back upon its 2013 judgment and finally decriminalized same-sex relations. I guess I'm coming to this as, as someone who is maybe moving towards a, a more and more skepticism about the potential of constitutionalism to actually be radical, although I still retain um, some kind of faith, because it's hard, once you've invested so much emotion, so much time, it's hard to let go. Thank you, Gautam. Um, my name is Joel Mudiri. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Pretoria, Department of Jurisprudence. My research started out in the beginning as um, research into the field of critical race theory. Um, to biographize it just slightly, um, I grew up in a township in... Um, South Africa that was uh, established just before the middle of the 20th century, 1939, Ettridgeville. And um, it was uh, predominantly part of the spatial project of, of, of the colonial regime, which was to place black people in, in really what were reserve or ghetto-like environments. And I think that uh, shaped uh, my political thinking about race and law so the work I'm trying to do is to draw from the historical archive of the black freedom struggle, specifically now for my current research, what we call the black consciousness pan-Africanist tradition in South Africa, but with all of its roots into the rest of the black world, um, particularly the trifecta of Anton Lembede, but Anton Lembede also working with Ashbim Da, Robert Subukwe, and Steve Biko, and that generation of intellectuals from the 1940s to the 1970s, which in my view elaborated a completely different concept of law, of politics, of political community, of justice, of freedom, of futurity. And these were the ideas I, I have argued that were neglected and even um, um, in a way suppressed in the making of the post-1994 constitution. So unlike you, I, I didn't start with any hope in the constitution. I already started with a worry that the constitution of the new South Africa as a political project of nation building and as a political project of, of overcoming uh, historical uh, injustice um, was blind to, ignorant of, um, closed out from rather, a much more radical tradition of black thought. And, and my argument is that rather than critiquing the constitution on the basis of its imminent failures, or to argue that the constitution's failures are merely external to it, that the problems are interpretation, um, legal culture, political will of the state, and I think that's also true, it's part of the story, but I'm actually suggesting that to the extent that the constitution is a textual representation of a particular political imaginary and of a particular political moment, um, was always already going to fail at producing a liberated society. So I guess I have a couple of comments and a couple of questions. Given that the constitution remains 
framed in abstract terms it embodies what it claims to be a universal uh, values um, don't you think that it's possible to take this radical black intellectual tradition you have been talking about and say that look it's actually possible to interpret the south african constitution in a way that takes this forward and the fault is of judges the legal culture and so on yeah so i'm trying to move us away from the imminent critique right well and there are few ways to get at this so the 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 antinomy here the 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 contradiction the major difference was if it were to be boiled down to this that the ANC's let's call it either the charterist or the congress traditions vision of change did not imagine the abolition of a colonial state it imagined the democratization of the colonial state it was a tradition that consistently even though it had sort of radical moments and elements within it consistently sought a place within the colonial order but the africanist tradition starting point though is completely the inverse it is that south africa was not simply made without the native because that you can correct it was made against the native and because of that the argument of the africanist was that any attempted reform would be a dead end Now to answer your question about um the constitution and its interpretive possibilities well the first point is um because of the africanist starting point of the illegitimacy of the founding of the of the south african order and therefore the illegitimacy of any constitutions that evolve from it rather than that mark a revolutionary break from it that the constitution is therefore not the starting point right so your your project works for someone who thinks that the origins of the constitution are untainted or who thinks origins ma- don't matter that much and i know people who say let's forget about the origins let's just see what we can do with this now and that's just not good history good scholarship and it's not even i think a sensible way to approach this now then the second point for me is that i i agree completely and 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 i think it's an important and worthwhile work to be doing the work of transformative interpretation of working with what you have in order to ameliorate the harshest conditions of inequalities and and, and human suffering but i do think words have limits i mean otherwise i i i don't think the meanings of text are as elastic as one makes them there's certain constraints we know this in south africa around the socio economic rights clauses they have an immediate limitation because they 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 have the condition of available resources and so that's just a limitation that's just people have tried to read it in very different ways and so forth but it but it's clearly a a constrained element of the constitution so i think we can only go so far with interpretation and then the third point which is the point i I'm trying to really think about substantively now is that I you a constitution cannot be read in abstraction right even though it has abstract terms that can be interpreted openly but the constitution itself can't be read in the abstract in other words you can't read our constitution in South Africa outside of the negotiated settlement and outside of the attempt to preserve white capital and the secret negotiations that the ANC entered into with white capital you can't read the constitution outside of a eurocentric order of power and knowledge and the ways in which the global waves of liberal democracy and westernization of african post colonies was part of this imperial project you can't read the constitution so even though in the practical day to day struggles of say a community fighting for water rights that looks very distant it looks very in a way esoteric to mention imperialism like they don't care they just want water i think it does because ultimately the constitution represents an entire political imaginary formed by 
first it's the language that it has, but also by what I would call the internal and external uh, determinants. And I would say Eurocentrism, liberal capitalism, um, neoliberalism, those are determinants of a constitution's meaning. They are determinants of a constitution's potentiality. And they are reason enough to overwhelm and render a constitution hollow. I, I understand exactly what, what your argument is. And I think, I think I have two things to say based mm. on the Indian historical experience. The first is that, that I think that, I mean, so I, 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 think I, I guess I don't yet quite agree that a constitution or any text is um, embedded in its origins to an extent that it can never liberate itself from that, right. from those origins. And I have two examples in mind. The first is that, the first is the history of liberalism. Liberalism, as it arose alongside the Enlightenment in Western Europe, right. was exclusionary in its very design yeah. because Enlightenment depended upon refusing to extend what it claimed on behalf of white people to non-white people. Like Immanuel Kant was a thoroughgoing racist, like we all know that, right? right. Um, and and as were uh, John Stuart Mill, right, strongly believed that the colonized countries were savage, they were not ready for self-government, that whole argument about the waiting room of history. Except that once these liberal philosophers, including John Stuart Mill, had framed their argument in the language of universalism, it went beyond their control. And there's this fascinating history where in India, mm. uh, John Stuart Mill's The Subjection of Women right, became a canonical feminist text that Indian women used to make claims against Indian men. So John Stuart Mill never intended that Sorry. his arguments on the rights of women could ever be used by non-white women against non-white men, right? There was, of course, the whole savior complex of white men going to save down women. That was one thing. But he didn't think that his arguments would have any purchase in non-white countries because the whole project was that, look, white people have this autonomy, this dignity. They're able to do all this, whereas the rest of them don't. But once you have those arguments down there, then you, the, the author dies, right? To use the old Barthesian-like argument. Uh, and you, ha you lose control over how others will interpret what you said. And the, the second point um, is, is, again, broadly similar, which is that I think there's a distinction to be drawn between what you can secure through constitutional litigation and what a constitution does not prevent a state from doing. So you're talking about the disjunct between the vision of society that the Constitution, South African Constitution talks about and the reality of continuing racism, inequality, uh, dominance over property in South Africa. Right? Now, I think that, that that goes to, for me, at least a slightly different distinction, which is that you cannot revolutionize society and bring about substantive material equality through constitutional litigation that's going to court and Absolutely. enforcing rights. Right? So, right. And, and, the, and the limitations of that are well documented, and we both know that. I think the key question is that were tomorrow a government to come to power that subscribed to your radical black intellectual tradition, or that subscribed to Ambedkar's views on the annihilation of caste, would the constitution A stand in the way of it coming to power, and B, once it came to power, would it stand in the way of it um, uh, implementing its radical manifesto? Now, if you look at the US, right, the way they've interpreted their constitution, and there's a, a, actually right now is a big debate if a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren was to come to power in the US, even their mild social democratic reforms would be stalled by a US Supreme Court that would read the constitution to prevent any kind of redistribution. And I think that 
for South Africa and I guess I guess that question will be debated once you have your debates over you know whether the land redistribution and all in India in the beginning that was the case the first 20 years but at least now it seems unlikely that if you had a government that was able to come to power on a radical manifesto the constitution wouldn't stand in its way of in its, in its way when it implements that that manifesto so i think that it might be expecting too much of constitutions to say look we can use constitutions to reform society um except under except that you have like categorical rights of a certain kind but i think that if as long as constitutions don't stand in the way of of radical reform that's about as much as you can expect from them regardless of their um origins and that's what they should be judged on finally these two criteria mm. yeah well so i mean i partly agree the 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 problems are twofold one um that 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 argument only works if one takes the constitution as a sort of eternal fixed thing i mean you can just scrap it and come up with another one as the foundations of a society change and the abolitionist project is that way we're going to need to do that because when you're making a constitution you're not just drafting a legal document as you're pointing out you are reshaping the values and norms of a society so that's uh why i think a constitution is a particular kind of political project yeah i'm sorry to interrupt you yeah. that just a quick point on that but do you really think any document mm. can be can do what you're asking it to do it's, is, it's not you know, that it it's not that i'm asking it to do it it does that so in south africa the constitution is massive force over public consciousness a particular meaning of the constitution but um but the reason and so it's not even so my critique is of constitutional worship it's of thinking that constitutions can do that but it's also you the the written text is simply the written version of a much more foundational political reordering in a society So it's so for me it's not that the constitution does it it's that the constitution ought to reflect it right constitution ought to reflect a certain value system it ought to reflect that ideology so i would expect a socialist constitution to look very different to the one in the us even if you can push a socialist project through the current constitution i would expect because you're reconstituting a society and then you draft the constitution so i'm not asking this constitution or any constitution to do the work of political justice and liberation that's just asking too much i am asking for a constitution to reflect that aspiration clearly more directly in the appropriate language and cultural imaginaries now the south african constitution and western constitutionalism in colonial context faces a much bigger critique which i'm also elaborating which is a cultural one right spending more time on a western document means you're not even thinking you've in fact surrendered the idea of an african law uh, for example um, you you're simply saying listen it's over let's just work with what we have there are people who try to say you could read this whole thing completely differently but why waste that time if if what you need to be doing is asking a, a much deeper political question what kind of society do you want to live in yeah i think i think like i think there's a take on the last thing you said so there's actually a lot of fascinating historical work on how the abolitionists in the us in the right. 1850s actually argued before the 13th amendment before the 14th amendment that this constitution prohibits slavery which you would think is bizarre That's because right, yeah. the american constitution was founded in slavery and the constitutional text talked about three fifths you know like a, a black person counting as three fifths of a white person for apportionment purposes scholars who argue and historians who show that the american labor movement uh, in the 1910s 1920s pegged the radical labor claims on the constitution the tradition of labor republicanism is, is what they call it and uh, i think that uh, what's important and and to uh, to answer the question which you ended on that why waste that time is exactly that given that the constitution plays a legitimizing role in society pegging your claim to the constitution in a manner that is convincing gets you at the present time further than it would get you to reimagine the entire order through a political struggle and 
also given the way that the balance of political forces operate at any given time in a society i think history shows us it's a struggle that um you know the left so to say tends to lose right that's that's the, that's the record of history so in that sense the constitution ends up playing a a defensive role in that if you're able to um ground your claims within the constitution you are able to attain a position of strength uh which of course is is never going to be enough but at least it's something in a way that you would be unable to if you were to descend into the political arena given how it's actually rigged against already against equality and and freedom in different ways and so that's why to answer the question uh you need to spend time to, to do that work given the role that constitutions as you say play in society uh unless you're and, and again this could be a country by country thing so unless you're actually in a position where you can implement uh the constitutional vision that that you think is is a, is a good one uh you have to use the constitution to preserve what what you have and which is in danger of being swept away which is um, which is I, i think um at least present some kind of a, a danger in india right now right. the second point is and just to take on from that is that i think implicit in your argument is the um, the premise that there's something ne- negative about a compromise a compromise settlement and i think that need not always be the case which is why again i'm interested in how you can resuscitate certain readings after the fact mm. so in 1947 in india given the balance of power mm. a compromise was the was the only way you get anything done and which is why ambedkar actually accepts the role as chief chief draftsman of the of the constitution that there's i think a case to be made that at the time a constitution was framed the negotiated political settlement the compromise was the only way you could have even got to that point uh that moment has now passed and now uh, is the time to to reimagine that constitution in a way that liberates itself as i said earlier from the compromised uh, origins of its coming into being but that would be a gradualist project but because it, what would make yeah. that project different to re- the remaking of a society is yeah. um the fact that you argue that that using the vocabulary of a constitution grants the argument greater legitimacy and yeah. you can do quite a bit of work with it so i think one of the things is you're right that that in countries now confronted by powerful totalitarian right-wing regimes um the 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 defensive role of a constitution cannot be understated and the, particularly the 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 um the defensive power of a radical interpretation of that constitution um but but that constitution alone if 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 it's not tied as i'm saying to a larger political project firstly and that constitution when it when it has overwhelmed the political space won't be able to resist those developments i mean what's happening for example with reproductive rights in the united states for example i mean one interpretation of the constitution went one way in a different period of history and then So for me it also has to do with whether the power over a constitution lie it has to com- lie in the in the in the in the political community um that authorizes it in South Africa we've had what I've called constitutional worship and constitutional optimism where the constitution is deified in this mm. in this way um and so the argument that we've been trying to make is that the constitution cannot be the center of the political anymore right in the way that it 
used to be. And, and, and that, that goes beyond the argument merely about the constitution being limited, that we know. But it also means you've got to probe what a con I mean, sometimes a constitution gets captured by meanings that are not part of its original vocabulary, for example. It, but it is actualized by those powers and discourses. So, to, so, so, I, so I guess I'm merely contesting, well, I'm not merely contesting that, but I'm contesting the distinction between a sort of a pure constitution and an external world. I'm saying it's, there's a, it's already imbricated in, in, in its meanings. But, but you're very right that this has to do with sort of questions of a political history and what one can do with a constitution. I think we need to be doing multiple projects, political projects at once. I think we need to be seeing what the possibilities are of a constitution to safeguard against particularly state power. But I, but I do think we are now at a moment, not where we want to save liberal democracy, because I think that's a mistake, but where we actually are in a position, the world is in a position where the world has to be remade if it is to survive in me, politically, ecologically, you know. So um, that's where I, I, would, I, would, I would think that, that, that the limits of a constitution are. But I also want the constitution to move away from the experts and the lawyers and the limited framing of political life in terms of judicial decisions and court debate. I mean, the new wave in South Africa of constitutional discourse is this um, discussion of particular advocates and judges and how they reason. And, 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 and that's important and good. But I, I think if we're going to think about proper constitutional scholarship, we've got to integrate deeper political imaginaries into the conversation. And it also means asking, what are the silences of a constitution? What does a constitution not allow us to even talk about? And we need to insert those conversations both in the constitutional scholarship, but we also need to displace the centrality of a constitution so that those conversations can happen. Um, but I think we also shouldn't deny that um, constitutions also represent fixed interests. So just the point about compromises. A compromise, among other things, in the context of South Africa, means that the old order was not defeated. And the dangers of overvaluing the constitution, claiming it's transformative order, and not being honest about its political limits, like I think Calclay failed to do in the beginning, um, gives a, a, a frames the discourse of constitutionalism in a very problematic way. It's no coincidence that the critique, the most, in my view, radical critique of the constitution now is gaining visibility 20 or something years after, um, 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 or well, almost three decades into the new South, the new, the second new South Africa, as I call it. Um, and that's because um, there was a hegemonic meaning of a constitution that is faltering both on its own terms and because of the world it's in. And I think that's part of what the constitution is. So for me, the ontology of a constitution is also the, the external world that actualizes it. If that yeah. makes sense. No, I think, yeah. I think that makes sense. And I think, I think what we at least agree on is that the constitution cannot and should not be the preserve of uh, you know, lawyers right. and judges. And I'm, I'm reminded of a fascinating ongoing story where in a village in India, um, Adivasis, indigenous people whose lands were being taken over, uh, basically uh, imprinted constitutional provisions on stone slabs right. to, to you know make their claims and 10,000 of them have now been booked for sedition. Um, so, so on that pessimistic note, uh, we could talk about this for a long time, but um, we have to close. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just end by asking you like one, um, two questions, I think, for people who may be listening to this podcast and don't come from South Africa, which is that if you were to recommend two books that would encapsulate what your vision of constitutionalism or revolutionism is, what would those two books be? And if you were in charge of drafting a constitution, one provision that you would have draft, what would it look like? Well, I'd, I'd say we should start, they should start by reading Steve because I write what I like. Um, 
and then from there it really gets hard. I think, uh, maybe not books, but I think if you want to understand abolitionist politics, I would say that one needs to read uh, Marcus Garvey, Du Bois, The Pan-Africanist, um, the Haitian Constitution, the Ghana Constitution of 1960. I think one needs to read Robert Sobukwe. I think one needs to read Malcolm X. Um, and I think one needs to read Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism. Oh, I think that's really important. Um, um, I think one needs to read a book by Joy James called Shadow Boxing, which is about sort of black feminist politics. Um, that's the one thing. As to a particular provision, um, I can't think of one, but I, but, but, um, I can tell you which two I think should be removed from the current constitution or three. The first one is constitutional supremacy, has to go. The second one is non-racialism, has to be taken out. Not because it's, but precisely because it's a regressive conception of race. Um, it actually affirms the existence of races rather than works towards dismantling them um, and the property clause. But that's only if I thought this constitution could be saved, which I don't think <laughs> it can. Um, but um, also before we close, um, my, my, my deep interest is in Ambedkar and is in um, the, 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 his thinking on annihilation of caste. Um, and maybe this is how we'll close. So you can have the last word. Um, just if you could briefly say a few things about Ambedkar's difference from Gandhi, because Gandhi is a much more popular figure both in South Africa and elsewhere, and also what it is about Ambedkar's ideas, aside from his role, pivotal role in the Indian freedom struggles, what what about Ambedkar lives on um, today? Uh, That's a very difficult question. I'll try to be brief. I'll begin by saying that, I'll begin by identifying my own location in this debate. I am an upper caste Indian, like, you know, mm. upper caste Indian. So, mm. so I belong to the social group uh, that uh, Ambedkar rightly held responsible for the many centuries long structural oppression of his people. So whatever I say needs to be taken into account given my location That's right. in, in, in this debate. Uh, Ambedkar's difference with Gandhi, uh, Good Source, a book called The Flaming Feet. Uh, in summary, Gandhi believed uh, in accommodation in the sense that um, the, the, the Hindu society was one and united and um, and at that time, the depressed classes later became known as the scheduled caste, the Dalits, uh, could be brought within that fold. Um, and his method of doing that was to effectively uh, play up uh, their oppression as being something that is noble. So for example, he called them Harijans, which means children of God. Mm. And he said that the, the work that they were assigned in the caste hierarchy you know, uh, work such as um, cleaning and so on was actually very noble. And he would have public demonstrations of himself, um, you know, doing that kind of work and say, okay, look, this is actually, they're doing very noble work. Uh, and so so his his idea was that, look, if, if you can, uh, you can basically paper over the contradictions through um, a spirit of benevolence, a degree of sacrifice, uh, a public sacrifice, and that way you can have unity. Uh, Ambedkar, on the other hand, uh, believe that the only way to break uh, caste oppression was by ensuring that there was political and social power that was given to uh, to Dalits. And so he began by asking, he asked many things. Uh, he had movements for access to temples, access to water bodies and so on. But he very interestingly asked separate electorates. So he said, look, um, there should uh, scheduled caste should be able yeah. to vote for their own representatives um, in parliament. 
and Gandhi for that for Gan- Gandhi that was an anathema because that actually meant that you were treating scheduled castes as not being Hindus but as being like a different group and Ambedkar was like yes actually we are a nation like we are a separate nation uh, he said I have no homeland once uh, and mm. so so Gandhi basically then decided to go go to a, start fasting to death and he said like if if the separate electorates are granted by the British uh, then I will basically fast until I die uh, and Gandhi's popularity of course was such that when Ambedkar was told that Gandhi's death will be on your hands, this is 1932, uh, Gandhi's death will be on your hands, he had no choice but to, to withdraw his demand for separate electorates and that uh, left a, a long, long-term long effect on him. And the best source to read about mm. all this is this book Ambedkar wrote uh, called What Congress and Gandhi Have Done to the Untouchables. So in, in that he excoriates uh, the role of, of, of the Indian National Congress and of Gandhi and another work of his is called Jinnah uh, um, Gandhi. He talks about like these liberal reformers and he, it's a critique of, of liberalism as well. Uh, and so I think these, if you read these works, primary works by Ambedkar and the book The Flaming Feet, uh, you will get a good sense of mm-hmm. the different perspectives that, that they were coming from. Uh, as the final point, Ambedkar's relevance and role today. Uh, so this is the interesting thing. Um, Ambedkar has become such an important figure uh, that even uh, political parties that uh, you would otherwise think are opposed to his vision, nonetheless in public have to embrace him as the founder of the Indian constitution, as a representative of Dalits and so on. So in the public domain, um, actually he has uh, attained a kind of transcendent importance uh, that even at this point of time goes beyond Gandhi because Gandhi's legacy itself is under threat. Uh, not just from radical critique, but also from the right wing. So Medkar, ironically, perhaps, has actually become an even more universal figure um, in the public domain uh, than Gandhi right now. More practically speaking, you'll see statues of him in Indian villages with a copy of the constitution, you know, under his arm and so on. Uh, Dalit leaders have come to the fore recently, like a young leader called Jignesh Mimani, publicly kind of said this is Ambedkar's constitution, that's why we're like, you know, it's important to us, and we're going to try and like implement Ambedkar's um, vision. Uh, so I think that that um, that he's definitely there as a presence. Uh, I think what and 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 among the Dalits, there's also a very sharp understanding of, of his politics and and, and what he what he um, um, wanted. I think the problem and a point as you've made repeatedly is that in the context of race, that it's white people who have to confront the racism in their communities. I think similarly, it is actually the task of uh, of upper caste individuals in right. India to understand and to carefully read Ambedkar's work and to 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 understand uh, what it is that he was talking about, how the things he pointed out still exist today, and what the constitution um, constitution's role can be to to realize his understanding of what a casteless, um, classless, equal society actually meant in practice. Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Kira Allman. This episode was produced and edited by me, Christy Calloway-Gale, and was recorded by Nomfundo Ramalekana. Music for this series is by Rosemary Allman, and show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Dobby. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favourite podcasts.